Okay, welcome back uh, to RUF. Couple, let me just do a couple of quick announcements. If you really want to go to fall conference, we can squeeze you in. So find me if you're itching to go, and we'll make it happen. Secondly, if you are going to fall conference, we'll have three people up here with envelopes, and so come give them your money and make sure they check you off the list. That way we'll know that you've paid. Uh, and then lastly, concerning fall conference, you'll see on your announcement sheet, if you need a ride, please contact Mary Henley Green. Her number is on the announcement sheet, and she can take care of you and make sure you get there. Okay? You have your Bible. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. If not, look on a phone, on with a friend, or on your announcement sheet. As always, I want to say welcome if this is your first time to RUF. We're really glad you're here. Um, basically, we are a group of people, a community that's trying to figure out what it means to love God and love our neighbor. That's who we are. Uh, you're welcome no matter where you are tonight, whether you're uh, struggling, maybe you're doubting Christianity, uh, maybe you're struggling um, with your faith or with sin. We want this to be a place where you are safe to ask questions and also a place where you can come and not feel like you've got to have it all together. So that's our uh, kind of vision and hope is that that would be true uh, when you come to RUF. Uh, tonight we're going to look at, continue our study through the book of Revelation. And I'm not sure if you're, I, well I guess you're pretty much well aware now that 3D movies are making a comeback, or they've pretty much made a comeback. It seems that every movie nowadays is offered in 3D. For example, remember I have four girls under the age of nine. When Frozen came out in December, uh, they were invited to a Frozen party at the movie theater where they watched Frozen in 3D. I don't know what you think about 3D movies. Some people love them, some people hate them. But it really is pretty amazing when you put on those 3D glasses, something happens. The screen is filled with color. Suddenly the texture comes to life. The colors come to life. The depth of what you're seeing on the screen suddenly takes off. And things appear even better than in real life. But if you're like me, you're always skeptical when you walk into the movies and you have to pay the extra money for the glasses... And almost always, no matter how many times I go to a 3D movie, i got to test it. I think I'm getting, I just think there's no way that I cannot watch this without the glasses and things be fine. Well, so what do you do? You, what, pull your glasses down just to see? And when you pull those 3D glasses down, what do you find? You find a picture that is blurry and jumbled and pixelated and fractured. And I want to suggest tonight that that is often the way we see Jesus. Oftentimes when we see Jesus and think about him, it's like looking at a 3D movie without the glasses. In other words, we see a Jesus that is blurry, fractured, pixelated, and jumbled. In other words, we don't see Jesus as he really is oftentimes. Because we've oftentimes tamed Jesus and made Jesus into our own image. And the question that I want to begin with is, how does that change tonight? How does that change? We believe in RUF that that changes, that we start to see Jesus more clearly through this book called the Bible. 
And last week, as we started talking about the book of Revelation, we learned that the agenda for this book is that John is going to pull back the curtain and show us the spiritual world. The spiritual world, which is just as much, if not more real, than the world that we can see and feel and smell and touch. And in the book of Revelation, John's going going to pull back the curtain and show a confused and fearful people that things are not as they seem to be. Well, tonight, scene one. John's going to pull back the curtain. And he's going to give us this incredible, rich, powerful picture of Jesus shining in all of his glory, in all of his power. And there is no clearer picture of Jesus than the one we see in Revelation chapter 1. Before we dig in, let me pray and ask God to help us tonight. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come and ask very simply, that you would take this passage and apply it to our hearts. Open up our eyes, help us to see Jesus as he really is, and may you take this passage and actually move us with it. Father, through this word, Spirit, would you comfort us and encourage us and bless us, but also would you convict and challenge. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we learned that in the book of Revelation that John, the Apostle John, the writer of the Gospel John, is writing the book of Revelation and he's writing it to people who are confused and fearful. Why? Because they're being persecuted. They're being persecuted economically because they call Caesar Lord and they're being persecuted in their everyday life. They are being martyred. They are seeing friends beheaded before their very eyes because they believe in Jesus and their life is quite frankly coming apart and they're not so sure about this Christianity thing and they're ready to throw in the towel and give up. They're suffering terribly. But as we read Revelation, particularly if we get to chapters 2 and 3, we see something else that he's writing to another group of people. Remember in Revelation 2 and 3, he's going to start writing specific letters to churches. And one of the things we find is that he is writing also to people who are living lifelessly. Suffering terribly and living lifelessly. In other words, we see this as you go through chapters 2 and 3. He talks about these churches and he says they've lost their first love. He says that they appear to be alive on the outside, but deader than a doornail on the inside. He says that they're neither hot nor cold, but simply lukewarm. And he's going to spit them out of his mouth. In other words, he's writing to people who are bored out of their minds with Jesus. They're bored with Christianity and they no longer find it interesting. Living lifelessly, Suffering terribly. And I would say some of you find yourself in those places tonight as you sit in this room. For example, some of you are in the midst of very painful situations. Some of you find yourself in the middle of health problems that will not go away and a simple taking of a pill does not help you. 
Some of you sit here tonight and you have been abused by people who were supposed to take care of you. Others of you have experienced death close to you, maybe the death of a close friend. It's week two and you've already felt rejected by a friend group. Or maybe your family seems to be coming apart at the seams. I don't know what it is, but you find yourself in the middle of pain and suffering. But on the other hand, there are folks here that are bored with Christianity. You've been there, done that, you've grown up with this stuff, and the spark and the passion has gone out, and you wish so badly you could get the zeal and the passion back because you have no idea where it went. Maybe for you, you had a horrible summer, a very hard summer, and you hate the fact that you're okay with it. If any of those describe you, whether you're bored to death with the faith or whether you're suffering in the middle of hard things right now, Revelation 1 is your remedy. Revelation 1 is the remedy because what we need more than anything is to be moved. You and I need to be captured and have our hearts recaptured with the glory and the greatness of Jesus. And that's exactly what John is trying to do in this passage tonight. John is coming to us and he's pulling back the curtain and he's saying, come with me. Remember, it's about seeing this book. It's about, he shows us. And tonight he comes and he says, I want to show you Jesus. And I want to show you Jesus shining in all of his glory. I want to show you him as he really is. Why? So that your imagination might be revived and your heart might be recaptured so that you might leave this place reordering your life and looking to Him as the only one that can change you and cause you to live differently. John's solution tonight, wherever we find ourselves, is to be captivated by Jesus. John wants us to be captivated with two things, if you have an outline. Captivated with Jesus' power and presence. Yes, I had two P's last week. I'm stuck on P's. I'm sorry. (laughs) Power and presence. Let's look at number one. Power. Look at verse 1. Sorry, verse 10. According to John, he is worshiping in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he sees something. And let me make a note here. The Spirit, notice, doesn't take him further out of touch with reality, but drives him into reality. And he turns and he sees a person. And what John sees in person on the island of Patmos, he actually gives to us tonight on the pages of Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 13. He starts to describe what he sees. And he says that he sees one in the midst of the lampstands. One like the Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, that phrase, the Son of Man, just happened to be Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It was his favorite self-designation that he refers to himself in the Gospels. Not only that, it is well known and commonly understood that this phrase, the Son of Man, it doesn't come out of a vacuum, but it actually comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. You can look it up later. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes a heavenly royal figure 
like the Son of Man. And he goes on to describe him in a very similar way. What's the point? John is recalling that image in his mind because he saw exactly what Daniel saw. And then he starts to describe him. And let's look at how he describes him. And let me make a note. The point is for us not to overinterpret, which a lot of people do with Revelation, and try to pick apart every little detail, and you get consumed with that, and you actually lose the power of the image. And so instead of doing that, it's healthier for us to take the image as a whole and, so, and let it move us and let it capture us. And so we're not going to go through every detail, but I am going to mention a few things. And as I mention them, look at the passage and feel it. Get into it. Be moved by it. Look at verse 14. John sees Jesus and he says his eyes blazed. Fire coming out of his eyes, meaning that when you looked at him, you knew that he knew you deeply because his eyes were searching eyes. I love Eugene Peterson here. He says, the eyes of Jesus don't look at you. They look into you. His voice, it's one of authority. It cuts to the core. In other words, you want to listen to this man. Look at verse 12. I love this. I never noticed this until I started studying this passage. But John turns not to hear the voice, but to actually see the voice of Jesus. That's how powerful his voice is. It says it's like the roar of many waters. Think about it being near, right under the biggest waterfall in your life and trying to talk and whisper to the person sitting next to you. You cannot do it. Why? Because the roar of the water is so loud. That is what Jesus' voice is like, John says. Verse 16, a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The Apostle Paul says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And so what we gather is when Jesus speaks, He speaks the very words of God. His face, look at the passage, it is shown like the sun shining in full strength. Okay, so think about this image. This summer, on the beach, when you're on your vacation, laying on the beach in the, on the sand, looking straight at the sun, not a cloud in the sky, you're laying on your back, no sunglasses, and you try to open up your eyes and look at the sun. You cannot do it. Why? Because it would burn your eyes up. That is what the face of Jesus is like and what it's like, John says, to look at him. And let me be honest. Up until this part in the passage, I really love this. I'm a Braveheart, Gladiator, Tombstone. Those are old movies. I hope you've seen them. Please say you have. <laughs> but I love those rough and tough kind of... And You know, when I look at this and feel this, I'm like, yes! I can get behind this Jesus! And all of that comes to a screeching halt in verse 17. Look at verse 17. I don't like this part. Because I don't like to be undone. And I don't like to be messed with. Verse 17, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
And so here's the image. The image is John curling up in the fetal position, making himself smaller and smaller and smaller, curling up in a ball, saying, please don't touch me, please don't touch me, please don't touch me. How do you know if you've seen Jesus, encountered the real Jesus? Well, you hit the deck. You fall flat on your face and you worship. And here's my question for all of us tonight. Is this your Jesus? Has this ever happened to you? Is this your Jesus or is your vision pixelated and blurry and fractured and jumbled? You see, we all have a version of Jesus, don't we? And what ends up happening in all the editing that we do of Jesus, we end up giving him a makeover, and on the other side, he ends up coming out looking a whole lot like who? Me. And you. In other words, we end up making Jesus into our own image. Or to say it another way, we end up worshiping the Jesus as we want Him to be rather than worshiping Him as He is. Or the point is we end up making Jesus comfortable. Friends, look back at the passage. We can say a lot of things about Jesus, but one thing that we cannot say from this passage is that Jesus is boring, that Jesus is comfortable, and that Jesus is dull. And yet, that's what we end up oftentimes doing with Him. We end up making Him that way, making Him into a comfortable Savior. How do we do that? Well, one of the ways we make Jesus comfortable is by compartmentalizing our lives. In other words, we're cool with Jesus on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, but Jesus, stay out of my weekend life. Jesus, stay out of my freshman year because this is mine. Or we end up making Jesus comfortable by thinking that He doesn't care how obsessed we are with our academics and with our grades and with our schoolwork. Or we make Jesus comfortable by assuming that he dislikes and is irritated with the same people that we dislike and are irritated with. You see, one of the ways that we make Jesus comfortable, friends, is instead of looking at Jesus, the one we see in this passage shining in all of His radiant glory, in all of His power and purity, instead of looking at Him, you know what we do, and I do this too? We start taking it horizontal and we start looking and comparing ourselves to one another. Why? Because I can make myself feel better. Why? Because you can always find someone that's a bigger hypocrite than you. You can always find someone that's more drunk than you. You can always find someone that's more self-righteous than you. But here, here it is. When you meet the real Jesus, when we finally meet the real Jesus, the horizontal comparison games with one another is over. Why? Well, think about it. 
Because when you look at this Jesus and stop looking at one another, it levels you and you completely collapse like we see John collapse in this passage and you soon realize that we're all the same. Yes, your junk looks different than my junk. Your friend's junk's more public than yours. But we're all the same. Because the ground really is level at the foot of the cross. In other words, no matter where you are in this room tonight, we all need the same thing. We all need desperately the greatness of Jesus to show up in our lives and give us His grace. So whether you're living lifelessly or suffering terribly, the first thing John says is we need to be captivated with Jesus' power. Secondly, captivated with His presence. Look at verse 17. This is probably my favorite part of the passage is when it turns here, but he says, do not be afraid, do not fear. Why? Because the lion is also the lamb. And he reaches out, he's full of grace and love, and what we expect here is that John, that Jesus is going to touch John and boom, he's just going to burst into flames. That's kind of what you expect to happen, but that's not what happens. What starts out in absolute terror for John ends in a deep sigh of relief because Jesus touches him and says what? Do not be afraid. I'm full of grace. I'm full of mercy. I love you. You have nothing to fear. Be at ease. You are alive. That's incredible. But it gets even better. Look at verse 13. Easy to miss. Notice it doesn't say that the Son of Man, which we have identified, that's Jesus, doesn't say that He's on the outside of the lampstands, looking in. Where does it say He is? Folks, this is unbelievable. He's in the midst of the lampstands. What are the lampstands? Look at verse 20. The lampstands are the churches. It's the people of God. Seven. What is the number seven in the book of Revelation? It stands for completion. What is John trying to say? It's not saying there's a literal number. That's simply saying that all Christians, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is with you. He is in your midst. And you might say, no way. It sure doesn't seem like it because I am going through such a hard time. Surely Jesus has left. Remember, things are not as they seem. And John's pulling back the curtain and saying, let me show you what's really true. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Because Jesus is present with you. John knows... And think about this in your own life. The best medicine for someone that is suffering terribly and in the midst of pain is what? To know that they're not alone. Isn't that what you want? To know that someone's with you in your pain? And so John is coming to these struggling churches and says, look, we're going to talk about some wild stuff in the book of Revelation. But before we get to any of that, I want you to know that this great, powerful Jesus that I've just got through talking about and showing you, he's actually with you. He's actually in your midst. This powerful king doesn't stand aloof from your suffering, but he is with you in the midst of it. 
Some of you know this story, but one of the most intense times of suffering in my own life and in my wife Susie's life is when we've lost two children to miscarriage. We lost our first child in March of 2006. I'll never forget that uh, for as long as I live, and in many ways that suffering is still with us very deeply. But we were, uh, you can imagine, just can total, to- totally um, floored and broken and weeping, and we were struggling. And we get a knock on the door from one of our friends. He's a pastor in the Birmingham area. We were in Birmingham at the time. And he did his thing and read scripture to us. So keep in mind, Easter is coming. So it's like middle of the week and Easter's that Sunday. And he read scripture, prayed with us. And as he's walking out the door, it's almost like a throwaway line. But he says, Jason and Susie, he said, I want you to know that God knows what it's like to lose a child. Because 2,000 years ago, he lost his. Did that change the pain? No. Did that just all of a sudden everything got better and all of our heartache went away and that was like a magic pill? No. But did it reframe our suffering? Absolutely it did. Friends, some of you tonight are angry and bitter towards God. And if that's where you are, listen... Take that to God. He can handle it. Bring your questions to Him. But I want to say this gently. Some of you are bitter and angry towards God for not coming through on a promise that He never made. Friends, I wish I could say this were true, but it's not. God never promises anywhere in the Bible that He is going to isolate you from heartache and pain and suffering. He doesn't promise anywhere. He might, but He doesn't promise that He's going to take you out of it. But what He does promise is that He's in the midst of the lampstands. And He's present with you in the midst of it. Listen, this is a big room and there's lots of stories and lots of hard stories in this room. I don't know why the depression won't go away. I wish it would too. I don't know why your family cannot get back together and reconciliation be experienced. I don't know why your friend committed suicide. I don't know why you're lonely. I don't know why the eating disorder won't magically clear up. But what I do know, because the Bible tells me so, is that this Jesus, remember things aren't as they seem, this Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 is with you in the midst of those things. And notice, listen, notice I said this Jesus. Why do I make that clear? Because we have made Jesus such a wimp. I don't know what your background is, but oftentimes we grow up in Sunday school and we think of Jesus with these long flowing hair, neatly trimmed beard, or lights coming out of the sky, holding a lamb around children, all those things. Jesus is not 
a wimp. The Jesus that we need to get to know is the one in Revelation chapter 1, and he is the one that is present with you. Friends, think about that. A weak, wimpy Jesus is of absolutely no comfort to you in the midst of your suffering. But what if this Jesus is with you? It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Does it cause the suffering and the circumstances to go away? No, but does it change your experience in the midst of it? Yes. Why? Because you've got courage and hope suddenly in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of my favorite scenes is one that's not talked about a whole lot. It's when Lucy and Susan go to the stone table. Aslan has been killed. Aslan is the Christ figure in the story. And they go to the stone table and they fear that his body's been taken away. And they get there and guess what? It has been taken away. And Lucy and Susan start weeping and wailing and sobbing because Aslan is gone. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of their pain, they hear this voice behind them. Yes. You can just imagine Aslan. Yes. And they turn around And Lucy says, Aslan, I thought you were dead. And then Susan goes, "Uh, uh, are you uh, perhaps implying that it was a ghost? And then the most incredible thing happens in the scene. Aslan stoops down and licks Susan's forehead. And then she can smell the warmth or that she can smell the scent of his hair and feel the warmth of his breath. And then all of a sudden, it's incredible. You can just imagine them. They start screaming. And they start saying, Aslan, you're real! And what happens next is absolutely amazing. You see, when they were captivated by his realness, they started to dance and sing and play and roam like never before. Why? Because Aslan was present with them. Friends, the same is true for us. When Jesus, the one we see in Revelation chapter 1, when he becomes real to our hearts, our bored, lifeless hearts will be stirred and we will have courage and hope to look whatever it is we're going through right square in the face and deal with it with courage. Does it mean it'll go away? No, but we will have Jesus with us in the midst of it. And it'll make all the difference. Let's pray. Father, would you come? And our prayer is very simple. Would you take this Jesus...